Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Jorge Camacho. Jorge is a strategic designer, foresight consultant, researcher and lecturer. He is a co-founder of Diagonal, a research design and future studio based in Mexico City. He is also a research affiliate at the Institute for the Future and a founding member of the Plurality University Network. He currently teaches systems and futures thinking and strategic designs at a couple of Mexican universities. Jorge studied a master's in cybernetic culture and a PhD in cultural studies at the University of East London. As a researcher and a lecturer, he is interested in design practices that aim to drive social change, such as design futures, systemic design and transition design. Welcome to FuturePod, Jorge. Thank you so much, Peter. It's really, really delightful to be here. It's, uh, it's an honor to be part of this growing community that you've been building around the FuturePod. Considering all the guests that you've had previously here, uh, it's really uh, an honor to be, to be talking to you today. No, the honor's all mine. I'm just glad to, uh, to keep finding interesting people from around the world. Thank you. So question one, Jorge, is the one where I invite the guests to tell their story. So what's the Jorge story? My story is, uh, I guess that it's not different to people, uh, some people from my age, perhaps some of your listeners, perhaps some of the colleagues that you've uh, talked to before. Uh, and it's full of kind of uh, uh, groping uh, and looking for, for different things and uh, even to some extent, a story of kind of like impatience and indecision of hoping from one field to another. Uh, and, and at times also a little bit of a story of, of feeling kind of like out of place or an imposter or, 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 or specifically being like uh, to have like a lot of broad interests for a while that sort of like felt really strange. But luckily, I felt that uh, recently I, I start to feel a change in some professional fields and in culture in general that are trying to come in to appreciate people like me that have been able to experiment in different fields a bit more. So per perhaps I could go back to, to the university years. I studied communication, communication studies uh, with a practical bent. And uh, even, even or ever since I finished the, the, my first degree, I immediately started working and to some extent made a, a switch to the field of design. This was uh, already a few years ago, like at the turn of the century, so around 2000. And uh, I started working as an interactive designer in a studio here in Mexico City. I worked in that for a few years. You know, this was the time when I, I got to work on the first kind of like interactive websites. And I always talk to my students about this and, and I, I tell them that if they remember when you used to play CD, interactive CD-ROMs on the computer. Of course, most of them don't remember that, but I used to work on that. 
<laughs> so I did a little bit of progra- programming and design or coding and design and all that since, since college, since my first degree. I was always really interested in reading theory and reading uh, critical theory. So I ended up um, moving to London to, to study this program that you mentioned before. Um, I was interested in, in cultural studies. Uh, and I applied to a couple of universities, and one of them, the University of, of East London, responded me with a really interesting offer, which was a, a place to study in a new program that had this wonderful name of MA Cybernetic Culture, Media, Digital Arts, and the Body Machine. <laughs> I always say that every, every time I get the opportunity to say that. So this was in 2004, so it was... Uh, Still early days to some of the things that we currently associate with digital networks and all that. So a little bit before social media and all that. And this this was a program where I, I got to think a lot through critical theory and science and technology studies and uh, science fiction and all that. This was a program run by a couple of really interesting researchers that used to belong to a group called the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit which explored a lot of interesting things in the intersection of digital cultures and philosophy and even some stuff around the future. I then got, a, got to do a PhD in, in a cultural studies school, but I focused on, on a project that ended up coming closer to the field of uh, philosophy of technology. I was interested in how, I mean, the, the effects of, tech, of technology in society or how to study this relationship between technological change and society uh, from a philosophical perspective. So thinking about the concepts that we use to think about technology and the values and how do we evaluate technologies. My research was focused on energy technology. So it was something that I wasn't really an expert on, but I thought that it was really interesting to think about from this perspective. And actually, I brought this because that's that was my first little attempt or actually the the first time that I became aware of something uh, uh, like foresight or futures, the, uh, the actual the conclusion of my thesis was the first time I tried to write something that I would call now a scenario, even with a little bit of forecasting and backcasting. Since then, I, I, I came back to Mexico. And since then, I've been basically always involved in the, like with one leg on academia and one leg on practice. So in, in academia, I've been involved in different uh, fields, mostly tending towards design. And that's where I, what I do now. As you mentioned also in the, in the introduction, I'm working in the teaching and researching in the intersection of design and systems and futures. And on the professional and practical side, I also continued working on design and innovation and creativity. I worked a little bit on advertising and then moved to the field of innovation, quite interested in design. I always say that I have this really kind of like funny relationship with design because I wasn't trained as a designer, but I ended up working as a designer and thinking a lot about design and combining design with other interests. And and that's pretty much where I'm uh, in this uh, intersection between design futures and design and systems. The, The good thing that has happened to me over the last few years is that I've been able to sort of like converge on the professional side with the practical side in this, in this, uh, in this intersection with this, uh, between design and, and, and these other fields. So I work as a consultant in strategic design 
and uh, incorporating foresight and futures and design futures and all these things. So you obviously have an extensive culture and des- or a less extensive design background. Where have you trained or learned or studied specifically futures theory and, and methods? This is a really good opportunity to do a, a shout out to some people that I, that I really appreciate in the field. In about, what was it, like uh, six years ago, perhaps a bit more, one of the, um, the things that I was doing uh, was leading, I was the academic director of a program here in Mexico, in two different cities in Mexico, in Mexico City and Monterrey, in the northern part of Mexico, close to the States. And I was running a program that sat in a design school. And this was a program that was focused on delivering courses at the intersection, again, of design and, and other fields, specifically design and business. So one of the programs was a master in business innovation, and we had a, a program on design thinking and innovation and all these things. One of the things that I wanted to do when I was working in that, in that capacity was to explore. And I, actually, it was even kind of like a selfish thing to do because I was actually, I wanted to explore through courses in this program, some of the topics that I was really interested in learning myself and exploring for. So we took the opportunity for a summer to offer different, uh, different courses. One of them was in behavioral design and the other one was on organizational design. But the other one, which was my favorite and, and really the, the thing that really got me formally involved and served as, as my proper introduction to this field was a program on design futures run by Stuart Candy and Jake Donovan. Ah. So this was a, a really, really cool opportunity. I was quite interested in the field already. I was uh, coming from working before in, in the space of creative technology. So all these things that I mentioned before about working in interactive media, I continued doing that for a while. And through work in creative technology, I, I became interested in this in this practice or in these uh, designers that were merging in a really interesting way, uh, design practices and art practices and even some technological experimentation with the idea of exploring or engaging with the future. So I became aware of the work of, you know, the Near Future Laboratory and Anthony Dunn and Fiona Rabi, and of course, the work, the, the amazing work that Jake and Stuart had been doing already for a few years then around experiential futures. So I invited them to come to Mexico for a few weeks and they run this amazing masterclass on design futures. I got to work with a bunch of really cool participants and with them uh, developing experiential scenarios for the future of Mexico, for example. We did a, a really cool project around kind of like the future of Mexico City, in the context of climate change and, uh, you know, this little bit catastrophic idea, but we did a really cool experiential futures with Stuart and Jake and, and, and they've been, I mean, since then they became friends and they've been really, really supportive in, um, you know, connecting me with the field and even uh, leading towards really concrete uh, opportunities uh, to do the kind of work that I do now, like, for example, becoming a research affiliate at Institute for the Future where I've been uh, very lucky to work uh, alongside uh, Jake Donagan and a great team doing foresight for different organizations, including a lot of work here in Mexico and Latin America. That's fantastic. Thanks. That's good. That's good. 
to Jorge is one where I invite the guest to talk about a, a tool or a framework or an approach. And in explaining the tool, to go into how practitioners might learn more about it or use it themselves. So what do you want to talk about? Yeah, so one of the things that I've been doing uh, lately, not just by myself, but with my partners at Diagonal, the studio that, I, that you mentioned in the introduction as well, Fernanda, Emma, and Jaime, uh, has been to experiment a little bit with um, ethnographic futures. Yeah. And, and there's a few different reasons why we became interested. Apart from the futures work that we do, we've been working together for a few years in projects uh, in, in this kind of like broad space that we, perhaps for lack of a better term, uh, name strategic design. So all these projects that involve helping companies to figure out what to do in a context of uncertainty. And as you know, uh, a lot of the projects in this space involve doing primary research, field research, in order to understand not just uh, potential customers or users of a, of a specific product or service, but also stakeholders and, uh, in general, uh, uh, people that are uh, involved in the, in, the, in the problem or the situation. We've developed a good discipline and a good uh, craft for doing field research, doing one-on-one -on -one interviews or other, other different methods to engage with people. So last year, around summer, we had just finished a project around financial inclusion in Mexico. And this was a project that involved a little bit of foresight and futures, mostly trend analysis. Yeah. But one of the things that we learned in engaging, and this was, a, as I said, this is a project for financial inclusion. So we got to work with people from, how should I say, like underprivileged uh, background. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that really ca caught our attention in that research was how difficult it is for a lot of people and, and what a privilege, in fact, it is to be able to engage with thinking about the future, not just kind of like in a societal and long-term macro way, but even in a personal short-term perspective. Yeah. So there's a lot of people that live under certain conditions where it is really difficult to, to really look further ahead into the future. So while doing that project, we got interested in, in exploring that further besides the, besides the, the, the previous project. So we launched a, a project that was self-funded. The name of the project was in Spanish, or we will have to live here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's actually a nod to a really old uh, or actually a, a, a TV program that has been running for many years in Mexico, which is kind of like a sort of like an ethnographic exploration of uh, regular people in everyday life. So we wanted to, to do like a, like a shout to that program. But so we recruited three families and we engaged with them in a process that took a few months where we interviewed, uh, we visited them and we got to spend a few days and weeks with them talking about, so that the, the project was mainly focused on, on the one hand, the, their ideas about the future, their images of the future, and also at the same time, their everyday lives. Yeah. We engage with each of the members of the family individually, and then we run multiple sessions with the families together to explore, explore futures. Uh, and we based our, our 
process, of course, on the, on, on the classic texture um, work around ethnographic futures, but we were also quite influenced by a recent proposal by uh, Stuart and Kelly Cornett around the idea of ethnographic experiential futures. Yeah. So we adapted a little bit Stuart and Kelly's uh, framework to complement it with a little bit more of a trend analysis and an emerging issue, issues analysis. But we was really interesting to engage with these people. We got to challenge our own ideas about the future. And of course, also the ideas that you see floating around, mainly driven by uh, organizations or governments, and most of them very much focused on technology. And it was really interesting to suddenly have the opportunity to look at the future from the perspective of people that normally don't have the opportunity to engage with this future. Yeah. And, and this is something that I, I mean, it was really good experience. We then got to develop, you know, a lot of content around that. And we ended up producing or co-creating with, uh, with, the, with the families a set of ideas or concepts about around future or solutions and initiatives, products and services that could exist in alternative futures. And we picked some of those and we produced like an experiential installation for a design festival here in Mexico. So we ended up being able to share these ideas about the future with a, with a larger audience. And then that turned out into really a really interesting kind of like feedback process where we're not only were we were able to gather these um, families' images of the future, but then shared with a larger audience and, and in turn enriching our own images of the future. When you use the term ethnographic futures, it sounds like it's something different. But what I really heard you say you were doing was you work with a group of people who don't necessarily, you gave them the opportunity to design their own images and futures rather than just utilise existing familiar futures or used futures to use Sahail's term. Exactly. So rather than kind of take the stock ideas about the future, you said, no, no, let's see if these people construct their own unique idea about the future. Yeah, exactly. And, and we, we did it, I mean, following uh, to some extent uh, established practice. We did um, a few different rounds, so to speak, of engagement with them in order to be able to gather different ways for them to approach the future. So, for example, in the first round of, of interviews, we, we went back to Texter's uh, classic article and we talked to them about their ideas about different kinds of futures, you know, really positive futures and how they picture them, really negative futures and things in between. And then at the same time, we were doing, we were doing our own research. So for the next few rounds of interviews, we brought with us some material to sort of like perhaps enrich or even challenge their own ideas about the future. This is, this is the step that Stuart and, and, and Kelly Cornett talk, uh, call like multiplying their ideas about the future. Yeah. So we used our own research to present them with some, you know, emerging issues and some trends and to, and to gather their reactions to them. And then finally, 
in a third uh, round of, of sessions, we brought in even more information, but then we were focused on getting them to produce images of really specific down-to-earth everyday life situations. Yeah. So this was, uh, I think, uh, really interesting for us because we got, got a little bit of used futures from them, you know, like, because of course we are all immersed in a culture where different ideas about the future circulate. But then through our conversations and with the material that we brought in, we got to challenge some of those ideas, both in them and in us, and then use those to imagine things that neither them nor us had imagined before. Uh, Something interesting is that we ended up perhaps confirming or perhaps falling back into, into, into other tropes, other ideas about the future that have been addressed before. I'm thinking specifically of some ideas that have uh, been put forward by James Taylor around this idea of the new beginnings. This was really interesting because we ended up, we, we realized that people were leaning towards, uh, towards this idea that Taylor calls like new beginnings. So this idea of, we, we got a lot of images ar- around society in Mexico and infrastructures somehow collapsing, but, but not, in a, not from, a, from a catastrophic perspective, but rather a somewhat optimistic idea that people, and specifically the people that we talk to and their communities, would actually be able to not just survive, but even kind of like prosper or thrive even under very difficult circumstances. And, and this was really interesting because a few years back, at one of the universities where I teach, we got a visit from uh, James Dater. And, and in one of his talks, he actually said that to the audience, you know, like maybe uh, people in other parts of the world will have to be, will have to learn a little bit more about how people in Mexico and other countries, other emerging countries are solving some of these issues. And we may have to go back and, and learn a little bit for, uh, from you. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. Question three, Jorge, is the one where I talk to Jorge Camacho, a, a citizen of the world, a person who's living in the emerging futures all around us. So how does he make sense of the emerging futures around him? Yeah, well, this is, this is really interesting. And I, I don't, I'm not sure if I've ever been, if I've ever done the exercise to try to think about the future <laughs> what I'm saying that sounded really weird because I, this is a podcast about the future. But I, <laughs> what I meant to say is that try to engage with the with the future as, as you said, like a citizen, like a regular people, and trying to remove some of the frameworks that kind of like are always tainting our perception of the future when when we work in these in these types of uh, projects and activities. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think that. Uh, in the same way that a lot of, uh, of people, people that are close to me, probably people that you've talked to before in the podcast and in the and in and in your audience, uh, there's uh, I think we are we are living in a in a very important moment. I, I was and this this is this goes back to something that it, it is a little bit more personal and down to earth. I was recently with some family and friends. We were talking. They were originally talking about the 
you know, the coronavirus. And but then I started talking about climate change and, you know, like, you know, this moment where even if you're with family, just relaxing, you see and you notice an opportunity to bring some important issues that are not normally talked about in a, in a more family friendly kind of environment. And, and I told them something that sounds perhaps a bit childish, but I thought it, it would it work in that moment. And I, and I was telling them that the way I see it is that if um, someone were to make like a documentary TV series, you know, for, for one of these streaming services, like a, a documentary about the human history, we would probably be living in the in a very kind of like a you know like one of these episodes where things are really kind of like super intense and 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 you really want to see what what comes next. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're living in a cliffhanger. Is that what you're saying? We're living in a cliffhanger. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We're living in a cliffhanger. We maybe so. I mean, this doesn't you know like it doesn't solve in you know in a few years. Perhaps some of us won't be able to see you know, the final episode <laughs> of the series. I'm not talking about the final episode of history or anything like that. Just just of this, actually just of this season of the series. But if I were to make this, uh, this uh, TV documentary of, 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 of human history, perhaps, I mean, I was thinking that you would have to compress like hundreds of thousands of years in the first season in order to make it uh, really entertaining. The, the last season, you know, the season we are currently watching is probably a season where I would put the whole history of industrial capitalism, you know, so around the last 250 years. And when I say that, I'm indeed bringing some more theoretical perspective. And one of the things that I've been engaged with a lot recently, and it's, I think that to some extent, I've not always, but I've had a certain fascination with, you know, models and uh, that look at history from the perspective of cycles. Uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, like astrological cycles or anything like that, but more like technology cycles and techno-economic cycles and things like that. So for example, in the last few years, I've been quite influenced and inspired by ideas from people like Carlota Perez, the economist, who theorizes the history of capitalism as a series of waves and technological waves. So whenever I look into the future, I always look at it from the perspective of these, of these cycles. And even when I do that, uh, I can almost validate my, my informal idea that we are in this cliffhanger that you, that you said. According to Paris, we are living half, in the halfway of the fifth technological revolution of capitalism. We are, some of us in the, in, in, in the developed world in, in, or in, in certain spaces we are quite familiar with the digital technology and we feel that we have already seen everything that it has to offer but from this perspective we haven't seen the full history yet so we we i think we still have to see we have like perhaps three or more decades of the full maturation of digital technologies in the context of really big challenges like climate change and inequality and uh, crisis of globalization or the global democracies and all that, I tend to see what, what's coming next from the perspective of these of this, uh, curves or cycles. Carlota Perez, as many other historians and analysts of technology, looks at things from the perspective of these S-curves, 
And I fascinated by this idea that, that we are yet to see not just the, the, the next, the end, the second half of the digital escort, but like, for example, I've been, if you look at, there's plenty of books talking about the history of capitalism and, and you, you start to see all these S-curves. For example, one of, the, one of the graphs that always captures my, my attention is the graph of population growth. So if you look at, for example, the United Nations uh, projections about populational and, and, and things like that, you can see that perhaps we are, as this century unfolds completely towards the end of the 21st century, we may see the peak of uh, the demographic growth along with the peak of many other things like economic growth and, and um, the use of a lot of materials and, and things like that. So I, I, I'm quite interested in, in this idea of, of reaching the end of, of this curve, this small curve, and perhaps the whole big curve of industrial capitalism. Something important, at least that this is when I bring my futures and, and uh, future studies perspective to these ideas, is that I don't take these models to be predictive of the future. Rather, I see them <laughs> as tools to, to think about. So I'm perfectly in tune with the idea that we may not be able to see this, the end of this curve, because maybe because of all those challenges that I've mentioned before and plenty more, that we may see something else rather than the soft landing leveling off of the of the curve. So we may see like really difficult collapse futures or even more transformative ones. But I'm to some extent theoretically, personally inclined towards at least in the short midterm, towards the idea that we may be able to to manage to complete this cycle in a way that is not really, really painful for, for a lot of people. I think what Jim Data, and I agree with Jim in this regard, is one of the things uh, along with the, you know, the S-curve of, of our current technological and cultural system is that we, put, we have put a lot of faith in our institutions and our leaders to manage things for us. And what Jim sees coming and I see coming is people need to take take a lot more responsibility for the, themselves and their community's futures. Yeah. You just can't trust that people can operate at the big system level and take care of you. It actually is your responsibility to create your own future. I think that makes absolute sense. And it, this is not something that I've talk, thought before, but given my my interest, I, my mind immediately connected with, uh, with the idea of, of design, not just as a professional occupation, but as a capacity that is universal yeah. and that it's becoming more explicitly available for more and more people. So some of, some of my interests involve ideas around design becoming more widespread as a practice for people and communities and all that. I think the one that talks a lot uh, about this in a really, really cool way is uh, the Italian designer and theorist Ezio Mancini, who talks about this idea of design when everybody designs. So I think that for me, and, and it probably has to do a lot with my particular history, my, with my professional interest, but I think 
one of the things that excites me the most is the idea that one of the ways, at least in which people will be able to engage more with the future, not just on a personal micro, so to speak, level, but even in a larger scale macro way, it will be through something, some things that some of us would recognize as design practices, social design and collaborative participatory design. And I'm really, really, I think that probably is one of the things that keeps me hopeful about the future is this idea or this reality of people increasingly becoming more aware of their capacity to engage with their own future through design and other similar practices, including, of course, futures and foresight. So I think that's a really, really, really inspiring thing that you said. Thanks, Jorge. Question four, Jorge, is the one where I ask, how do you describe yourself and what you do to someone who doesn't necessarily understand what it is you do? Yeah, this is really interesting. I, I think that, for example, my, my family and friends, I think that to some extent they've given up <laughs> understanding what I do <laughs> since a few years ago. Not, not so much because of what I do or, or because the things that I do are difficult to understand or, that, or because they wouldn't be able to understand. Not at all. It's just because of what I said at the beginning that throughout my you know, like educational experience and my professional career, I've always been on the move, always been kind of like switching, switching places and moving to other things. So whenever I actually had my, my parents, for example, tell me, so I talked about you with my friend and I told, told them that you do this. And then I told my dad, well, actually, you know what? I'm not doing that so much anymore. <laughs> now I do more of these, you know? <laughs> so, but when, when people, when, I mean, it, obviously it's always kind of depends on who's asking, but the, the overall thing that I would say currently is that I bring all my nerdiness. I use all my nerdiness that people are pretty much aware that I have to help organizations to know people, to know what is changing around them and to imagine the future in order to make decisions today. And, and that at least makes some sense, even if it's abstract, but then that leads to a conversation where I can talk a little bit more about more specific things. Like, you know, actually I can help an organization to think of a, transformation strategy, or I could even help them to design a, a service, or I can help a community or a government to, you know, design or to provide better services and things like that. But I, it's always nice for me to start with the idea that, that you can actually use knowledge about the world and imagination in order to help organizations. Yeah. What do you do in situations where a person, how do I say it, is, is kind of pushing back a person who either doesn't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you encounter resistance yeah, and you want to continue to engage, how do you sort of respond to resistance or cynicism mm -hmm. or, um, or, or even apathy? Yeah, that's so interesting. 
I should say I probably don't respond that much, but <laughs> when <That's>... I <laughs> I avoid <laughs> the rest of the conversation. Now, no, I mean, I probably would uh, try to go back to some very everyday type of example. So even when, like in the first, in my first class every semester, when I introduce students to the basic ideas around uh, future studies and, and strategic foresight, it's quite easy to fall back into really everyday examples. And actually, very often when people react with, uh, there's, there are situations where you have one person pushing back towards, uh, push, pushing back against the idea of thinking about the future. And when you bring uh, an everyday example, they almost fall into the opposite position or there may be someone else in the same group that has the opposite position, which is like, well, so what? It's like something that we all, we do all the time, you know? Yeah. So when you explain this idea of imagining the future and then making decisions today and try to develop strategies and all that in a very simple everyday kind of way, there is always someone that will say, well, so, you know, so what, what's the difference? Something that we do every every time but at least when if you get people to recognize that is something very much universal that you can do every day then at least you can actually take the conversation to talking about more specific things and always my argument is that when you even if you take something that um, seems or is in fact very kind of like very normal for everyone to do if you are able to do it explicitly if you are able to cultivate some of the ways of thinking and some of the practices that are involved in that, you can actually do it much better. In general, my, I think I probably just realized that my, my strategy would be to convince that people that is pushing against me to recognize that what I'm telling them about is something that they perhaps already do in their everyday and that if they are able to make it explicit and intentional and deliberate, they may be able to do it better. And that what I do is to help other people and organizations to do it explicitly, intentionally, and deliberately in order to make it better, basically. Excellent. So, Jorge, we get to question five, which is the open question. So what would you like to talk to the listeners about? We shouldn't waste the opportunity to talk a little bit about Mexico, given that perhaps I'm uh, or pretty sure I'm the first Mexican to be featured in your wonderful podcast, which is quite an, an honor. But I think that some people in Mexico and even in Latin America, because I have very close friends in Brazil as well, like a shout out to Jacques Barcia from Institute for the Future as well, my, my good friend and colleague. Uh, and we always, like Brazilians and Mexicans, we are always almost reclaiming that our country <laughs> is the, the, the future because of, of the combination of being really messed up with also being really cool and having a lot of uh, really interesting opportunities. So... I think Mexico is a really like in a stage of like metastability or something like that, where you can see really cool things happening, really positive and optimistic things happening. And at the same time, really difficult challenges that perhaps to some extent 
anticipate or show some of the darker possibilities that are look, lurking in the background for everyone. For example, I was recently thinking about almost trying to map with, with some colleagues from Institute for the Future, map organizations and people engaged with futures here in Mexico and actually Latin America. And I was uh, a little bit dis disappointed uh, about the fact that there is uh, not a lot going on. And, and I'm trying to remember, I, I found this, this short interview with uh, Jordi Serra from, from the Center for Postnormal Studies in, in, based in Barcelona and uh, talking about Mexico and the state of futures in Mexico. And he argued, he said something like, like that. It is like kind of like a gray space because it's not very clear who's working around futures here. And I find that really interesting. And as I said, a little bit disappointed because for better or worse, there are many things going on in Mexico that could be at least useful to, to study and to share with, um, with everyone else aiming at uh, a really interesting uh, conversation. Perhaps when you talk to people abroad about Mexico, they either would say like, they would fall back on something like, hey, how is like the, the state of Mexico with all the drug cartels and violence and crime and all that. So they would be really, really scared about it. Or you would have people that are like, yeah, I've been, uh, been to Mexico uh, a lot of times. I was recently there and I really love it. I love the, the, the way people live. And I actually had a lot of uh, friends that have decided to move from the States or, or from Europe to Mexico. And they, they found a really nice place to live here in Mexico. And this is only starting to become like a little bit of a tourist uh, advertisement, <laughs> but it's not that. It's just that I think that from the perspective of, of futures, it's really interesting and hard to think about about the future in, 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 in this really complex country with so many things that are almost like um, dragging it into different directions. We recently with Institute for the Future, collaborated with some of the deans from universities here in Mexico to think about the role of higher education in, the, um, in, in Mexico. And, and what, something that was interesting was that the um, implicit assumption around this was that there was a, almost like a void or a lack of clear direction coming from, from the government. So I think that one of the things that is happening in Mexico, and this has to do with uh, with your really wonderful comment before about how maybe in this moment, the most positive developments would perhaps come with people becoming aware of their capacity to be more intentional about, about their futures. A thing that occurred to me was you know, the very, very, again, Richard Slaughter, always talked about sources of hope. And so in Mexico, there are plenty of things that would cause people to, they've already written the future. So, you know, what are the sources of hope? Because, I mean, that yeah, for you, you know, what are the things that give you hope? What are the things that cause you to want to go and teach people about design and futures and all this kind of stuff? Because clearly people are hungry for this. Yeah, de definitely that. I wouldn't be working in this space if it wasn't for that, and I'm super lucky because I've been able to 
to have a lot of opportunities to share these ideas with so many people in all a lot of schools and with a lot of organizations here in Mexico and abroad. And, and I think that it's become for me kind of like a feedback loop where I become really excited about what's happening in the, in the space of design and, and, and futures and how that is becoming more available to, to everyone. And when, whenever I have the chance to share that with, with different audiences, students and organizations, they are. They always respond with uh, with the same excitement that I have. So that almost kind of like multiplies my own my own excitement. I think really for me, what's giving me a lot of hope now is is, is to be able to contribute to this process where more and more people and and and, and just before we we started talking, uh, I was saying that to some extent I feel that. The fact that I am here talking to you is perhaps representative of something larger that is going on in the world, where not only is more and more people engaging with these practices and these ideas, but that also people that have known about these and have been practicing this for a long time, including you and your colleagues and some of the people that have been in the podcast before are also recognizing that there is people from new generations and from other parts of the world that are not only using these practices to bring hope into their specific context, but when they do it, they, again, feed back into the, into the established field and the established institutions. And it's almost like if it's re-enchanting perhaps to some people <laughs> uh, to see new, new generations and people from different countries like Mexico doing this type of work. And I think it's necessary. Otherwise, perhaps the, the steam would almost run out. Yeah. So if on the one hand, able to extend these ideas in my own particular context and, theref- and thereby become re-energized myself and then interact like in these uh, opportunities like here with you and with other institutions around the world, then it's all, it's kind of like serving to, to drive this uh, really positive feedback loop process forward. When I'm teaching and I get a little bit philosophical with my students and I tell them that, that I had this moment, don't remember exactly if it was reading something or if it was in, in a lecture with someone that I was attending, but I remember thinking that it seems like this kind of like aha moment where I realized that this idea of, of thinking about the future and using the future to make decisions and to live your life was a really kind of like an extraordinary thing to happen to people because at least from my perspective or in the, in the culture where I grew up, we tend to see history and the future as something that is that somehow happens to you. Mm. And for me, the, this idea of more and more people, and I always say that, okay, so I've been teaching a few years this thing, and imagine all the people that have been teaching this and doing this for ages, and I'm just like the last one to become involved in this. And for me, the idea that more and more people would be able to engage intentionally with their own futures is something of a kind of like an evolutionary step that I don't know what, what could happen, you know? Normally, people respond really cool to the, really good to this idea that 
what would happen if suddenly everyone was able to think and to act uh, with an imagination of the future, even if we have different perspective of things, it's way better to explore and to address these issues, taking into account the future and multiple futures. And I think that helps everyone involved, even with contrasting interests and, and power, to be able to gain more agency with regards to their life. And I don't see how anything wrong could come with that. Thanks, Jorge. That's, uh, that's been great. Thanks for taking some time out to, uh, to talk to the FuturePod listeners. I wish you and your colleagues work in Mexico and Latin America and Central America all the best for the future. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been great to talk to you. It's been a really, really good uh, learning experience for me as well. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.